Well, I'd like to encourage you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of Job. The book of Job. I was asked recently, just last week, why we're uh, studying in the book of Job or going through the subject of suffering. And it was a couple of weeks ago that I came to John 17. We've been going through John 17 for a number of, of weeks. And I came to John 17, which is the passage on the high priestly prayer, an intra-Trinitarian discussion, a prayer from Jesus to God the Father. And it was a very rich passage and a very uh, deep passage as well. And I needed more time to study uh, that passage. And so I thought to myself about the Lord Jesus' sufferings. And in addition, I opened my file and I remembered, I uh, saw a number of, of sermons and material and things like that. And I thought it would be appropriate for us. And that is why we had Job chapter 1 last week. And this week we come to Job chapter 2. Job chapter 2. The text of Scripture reads this way. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited him against incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity they had, that had come upon him, they came, each one from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Maamthite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him 
for they saw that his pain was very great. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your grace and your love. For you are the one that is sovereign over all things. And we pray, O God, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might see great and wonderful things from thy word. For they are precious. In Jesus' name, amen. There was an article written in the Topeka Capital Journal 13 years ago, as I remember the story had unfolded. It reads this way, Holton. Early on, Veronica Roney Bowers knew she wanted to be a missionary teacher. On Friday, she died fulfilling that ambition in an airplane in Peru. Bowers, 35, of Muskegon, Michigan, and her seven-month-old daughter, Charity, were killed when a Peruvian Air Force jet shot down a single-engine plane carrying the American missionaries over the Amazon jungle. The plane had been mistaken for one carrying illegal drugs. The pilot was wounded, but Bauer's husband, Jim, 37, and their six-year-old son weren't injured. Ronnie Bowers had wanted to become a missionary teacher ever since she was about 12 years old. She met her husband, the son of missionaries in South America, in college, and they clicked because of their missionary aspirations. In Friday's plane incident, Ronnie Bowers was reportedly holding her daughter in her lap when a bullet struck her in the back, killing both her and the child. I remember when this happened. I remember watching it on the news, hearing about it 13 years ago. I remember thinking to myself, why? Why would something like this happen? Doesn't it hinder the work of God when people who are missionaries, who desire to go in the first place, who are so willing, desire, and yet to die so tragically, The answer is no. There are reasons by which things happen, and many of them are not known by us. It is amazing because I remember watching on world news. Watching on world news, which is watched by millions of people on NBC, the testimony, the testimony that was given by her husband on the evening news about how God had called them to preach the gospel. And their testimony to millions of people was powerful. Just like last night, I was watching the news because two missionaries with Samaritan's Purse, or one with Samaritan's Purse, and I believe the other was, they had contracted the Ebola Virus, and they were flown back to the United States. And I remember how they had heard the testimony of the doctor, and they played it in his own voice, saying that he had never been to Liberia, he didn't know any Liberians, and yet he was going 
to be a missionary doctor there. Why? Because of God's call on his life. Opportunities that God opens the door for a testimony to an unbelieving world. In the funeral, in the funeral, her husband, Ronnie Bowers, displayed an attitude that humbled itself before God. The article reads, Jim Bowers stood in front of 1,200 people in Calvary Church in Fruitport, Michigan, and said, Most of all, I want to thank my God. He's a sovereign God. I'm finding that out more now. Could this really be God's plan for Ronnie and Charity? God's plan for Corey and me and our family? I'd like to tell you why I believe so. Why I'm coming to believe so. And he gives a long list of unlikely events in which in and after the shooting and alludes to God sending his son to the cross. And here are some key sentences that he shared that only those who trust in God's sovereign care for their own will would really understand. He said, Ronnie and Charity were instantly killed by the same bullet. Would you say that's a stray bullet? And it didn't reach Kevin, the pilot, who was right in front of Charity. No, it stayed in Charity, who's a little girl on her lap. That was a sovereign bullet. He speaks of his forgiveness to those who shot at the plane. How could I not, he says, when God has forgiven me so? Then he adds, those people who did that simply were used by God. Whether you want to believe it or not, I believe it. They were used by him, by God, to accomplish his purpose in this, maybe similar to the Roman soldiers whom God used to put Christ on the cross. Many of you know the name Steve Saint because you've heard about Elizabeth Elliot or Jim Elliot. Steve Saint is the son of Nate Saint, who was one of the party that went and his father was killed. In 1956, he was just a boy. Steve came to the microphone that day at the funeral of Ronnie and Charity. And what he did was he took the microphone and he looked down at Corey, the six-year-old boy whose mother and sister had been killed. And he said, Corey, my name is Steve. You know what? A long time ago, when I was just about your size, I was in a meeting just like this. I was sitting down there, and I really didn't know completely what was going on. But you know, now I understand it better. A lot of adults use a word that I didn't understand. They use a word that's called tragedy. But, you know, now I'm kind of an old guy, and now... When people come to me and they say, oh, I remember when that tragedy happened so long ago. I know, Corey, that they were wrong. You see, my dad, who was a pilot like the man you probably call Uncle Kevin, and four of his really good friends had just been buried out in the jungles. And my mom told me that my dad was never coming home again. My mom really wasn't sad. 
So I asked her, where did my dad go? And she said, he went to live with Jesus. And you know, that's where my mom and dad had told me that we all wanted to go and live. Well, I thought, isn't that great that daddy got to go sooner than the rest of us? And you know what? Now, when people say that was a tragedy, I know they were wrong. Then Steve Saint looked up at the 1,200 people and told them the difference between an unbelieving world and followers of Jesus. He said, for them, the pain is fundamental and the joy is superficial because it won't last. For us, the pain is superficial and the joy is fundamental. Let me repeat that. For them, the pain is fundamental and the joy is superficial because it won't last. For us, the pain is superficial and the joy is fundamental. For people who don't know Christ, the pain of trials and suffering is fundamental. It's paramount. That's all that there is because there is no hope. There is no future. There is no purpose in life. But for the Christian, for all things, there is a purpose. It's not a tragedy. As God has promised in Romans 8.28 to us, that all things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. So how are we to handle the difficulties and the trials in life? That is why we are in the book of Job. In the book of Job, in chapters 1 and 2, we saw how Job responded to the extreme difficulties in his life with the loss of everything that he owned, the loss of all ten of his children, and here the loss of health and well-being such that boils covered his body and disfigured his face so much so that his friends couldn't even tell who he was from a distance. Satan's goal in afflicting him was to show that his faith was a sham. It was to show that people only worship you, God. That was his accusation because of what you give them. You give them good health. You give them good things. And because of that, they'll come to you, God. Sounds like a health wealth message, doesn't it? He mocks God. But Job displays true faith. He displays true faith that does not deny God. He displays a faith that doesn't become angry with God or turn tail coat and run. So too, so too, God calls us to respond in the same way. You know, there's a passage in the book of James, before we look into the book of Job, a passage in the book of James that is fundamental. If you'll turn in your Bibles there. Right after the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Verse 2. For James writes to these believers, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking 
in nothing, lacking in nothing. He calls us to consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And the picture that is painted there is a picture of the trials. The trials and the word pictures there, a goldsmith or a silversmith or a metal worker who has this little cup in which he puts the gold ingots or the precious metal ingots in there. And it's on this long pole. And that long pole is thrust into the fire. And that little cup heats up. And the precious metal melts. But with any precious metal, there are impurities. And those impurities are called dross. And the dross rises to the top. And the metal worker will take that out and he'll scrape the dross off and put it to the side. Then he'll take that metal once again and put it into the fire and heat it up and the dross will once again come to the top and then he'll take it out and he'll scrape it off and put it to the side. And he'll take that metal once again and put it in again and again and again. The dross continues to come to the top until when? Until the metal worker can look into the metal and see a reflection of himself. And that is what God does to you and me when we go through trials and suffering. That he puts us in the cauldron and the flames of suffering so that he can continually take the impurities out of our life until someday he can look and see the perfect image of his son, Jesus Christ as he conforms us to the image of him. So as we look at this text here today, we look at Job, Job who loses his health, and we see Satan come, the one who is going to mock him, mock God, and accuse, accuse the believer, Job before God. Similar to the first time he came in chapter 1, he comes along with the angelic host. He's been roaming around on the earth with victims to assault. And he's brought Job to ruin at this point in time, taking everything he owned, except for a few servants who came back to report to him, taking the lives of his children. And yet Job was a godly man of integrity and he points out the fact that once again he is a blameless man that is what the text reminds us of he's a blameless man an upright man and even though Satan incited God to allow Job to be unjustly treated Job remains faithful and he worships God and in the end he says what Naked I came from my mother's womb, chapter 1, verse 21. And naked I shall return there. And the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In the loss of everything, Job bows in worship. And through all this, verse 22, he did not sin, nor did he blame God. Yet Satan accuses once again. Verse 4 of chapter 2, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. Put forth your hand, he says to God, touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. In other words, uh, afflict his health and his well-being and I'll show you that his faith is a sham. 
Now it's true that some people's faith is a sham, a facade, and they'll follow God believing that God is like a candy machine, that God will make them healthy, wealthy, materially prosperous, and they only follow God when it works for them, when God works for them. But Job's faith was genuine. His faith was a genuine faith, and like a diamond retained its qualities no matter what sort of pressures came. And God allows Satan to physically afflict Job whatever way he wanted yet not to take his life to demonstrate that true saving faith is one that will not deny God in the most difficult of circumstances. And God allows this affliction to occur. Job has no idea. Job has no idea there's this discussion in the spiritual realm and when things come, it reminds us that there is a battle. There is a battle. It is a spiritual battle for the hearts and minds of people, for the lives of people, for the hearts and minds of our children. We need to be faithful and surrender to God and respond in a godly manner for the glory of God because God has a sovereign purpose behind what happens. And we saw that last week. And Job displays here his integrity despite his physical suffering in verse 7. The Bible says Satan went and afflicted him from head to toe. Boils are like open sores, by the way, all over. And they were so painful that Job took a piece of pottery and scraped his boils, scraped his boils, and he went outside of this city. That's the ash heap there. The ash heap is outside of the city. That's where lepers went. Lepers went there, and he sat down among the lepers, and it must have been so very painful, which is what the text says in verse 13. They saw that his pain was very great. It doesn't reflect emotional pain. That little phrase there meant that his disease was extremely excruciating, painful, and increasing, so much so that when his friends came, they were speechless, They didn't even recognize him, the text tells us, because of how he looked. There was no medication, no sort of antiseptic or whatever it may be, but to scrape himself with a piece of pottery. Not only now did Job lose everything that he owned, but all that his own health and well-being was disappearing, living in constant pain and misery with no relief. And then, Mrs. Job comes on the scene. Understandably, she has gone through trauma with Job. So I think that there is some sympathy that needs to be extended to her, despite what she is about to say, because she too has lost ten children. She too has seen and lost the possessions that has been taken from her family, and she is likely in shock as well. But she gives some poor advice to Job, saying, do you still hold fast your integrity? In other words, she recognized that Job, despite all that he had lost, despite his health, despite all the suffering that he was facing, still held fast to his integrity, and he, she tells him, curse God and die. You're so miserable, you've lost everything, it's better to die. Why do you still hold on to God? God, 
God is a good God. You're in constant pain, though. There's no relief, no hope. Your best chance of any relief is to die. Commit suicide by cursing God. God will take your life. It's better to die than to live life with constant pain, with constant suffering, with constant misery. But Job takes no such advice. Instead, he responds in verse 10 in a very telling way. But he said to her, verse 10, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. In other words, he recognizes that it is God who gives blessings and good things as well as God who brings adversity. In all of this, Job did not sin. In this very short interchange between Job and his wife, we learn a number of things. And one thing that we learn is that worldly wisdom is foolish. Worldly wisdom is foolish. Do you see, her mentality was, your quality of life is diminished. You can't do everything that you used to do. Have what you had. You're perhaps an inconvenience. You're suffering. The world will tell you the same thing. Your quality of life is not worth living. You're living in constant suffering. You should end your life. Or that child will live with a disability. Do the responsible thing. An abort. Or that elderly parent will drain you. Maybe it's best to put them out of their misery. Or why don't you do the compassionate thing? The compassionate thing. Much of the world's advice comes from the view that the world is devoid, you see, because the world is devoid of the purposes and the presence of God. And where God is not a part of the picture, then what? Pain is fundamental and joy is transient. Don't do what pleases God. Do what pleases you. That is the foolish wisdom of the world that the world will give. Secondly, we see that God is sovereign. And so we can accept both blessings and adversity. As noted earlier, God is involved, as we shared last week as well, in allowing these things to happen, permitting them to happen, and sovereignly orchestrating them to happen because Satan can do nothing outside of the will of God. Satan wanted God to afflict Job's health. God doesn't do evil. But he allows evil to occur for his divine purposes, and he through a secondary agent, causes adversity. We may never know what these purposes are. Rather than trying to explain and find out who is to blame for whatever it may be, we are to surrender our lives to the Lord, knowing that God's purposes and God's ways are so much higher than our ways and God's thoughts than our own thoughts. We should ask ourselves, what does God want me to learn? What Does God want to teach me? How can I use this as a testimony for God's purposes? And how can I respond in a way that honors God? Because ultimately, all things work together for good to those who love God and who are called and according to His purposes. We may not see it as good, but from God's perspective, 
There is some ultimate good that comes out of even the worst of situations. Thirdly, we are to keep our integrity and guard ourselves against sin. Not only is worldly wisdom foolish, not only is God sovereign and so we can accept both adversity as well as blessings, but we're to keep our integrity and guard ourselves against sin, just as the text tells us that Job did. Having integrity means to be upright, to be moral, to be morally sound, to do the right thing despite the circumstances. Whether it's losing your possessions or losing your children or losing your health, in all of these things, Job did what was right, kept his integrity and did not sin, the text tells us. Because Satan would love nothing more than to use, use you to prove himself right before God and say, See God, I told you so. It's easy to compromise our integrity and not do the right thing and justify it saying, Well, under the circumstances, I'm sure that most people will understand They will do what's right despite the circumstances, despite the consequences. That's a person of high degree of integrity. Why does it mention that Job did not sin with his lips? I believe because a person's speech reveals what's in their heart. That's what the text in the New Testament tells us. When a person says, reveals what is in his heart, it's easy to become angry, bitter, resentful, to blame someone else. And then the complaining comes when difficult times come. All you have to do is you put a heat lamp on someone or cause the pressure to be enclosed around someone's life due to an issue and you'll find out what's inside. But Job's response here is a model for us, a model of humility, a model of worship, an example of faithfulness, of obedience, of ultimate submission to God. Later on in the book, we see that Job does falter in his own thinking. Yet, through this point, in all that he has done, he has been a man of integrity. Job has been a man of character. Thirdly, not only do we see Satan the accuser and Job's integrity, but we also see Job's counselors, his friends. Job has three friends, verse 11 to 13, who come. They come to him in this time of adversity. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. And they do care for their friend, I believe. They were sad for him. They wanted to sympathize with him, and they sat with him for seven days and seven nights, and no one said a word to him. That was perhaps at that time for this situation the best thing that they did throughout the book of Job. They were with him. Job's heard. They've heard. They came together. You can imagine what they saw, a person whose face was so disfigured by boils they didn't even recognize him. They gave of their time. They gave of their time. They gave of their own relationship to help their friend. You know, whether it's a funeral or whether it's a disaster, giving of one's time is often precious. I remember when I was a boy in high school, I would try to go to as many funerals as I could. 
especially of those maybe that growing up in the church, I didn't know them very well. Maybe they weren't up forefront or whatnot. But I tried to go because I thought to myself, the scriptures tell us to rejoice with those who rejoice and you weep with those who weep. Many people are more than happy to go to a wedding, even if they don't know the bride and the groom. Nice food, great times, a big banquet. The bride and groom shake hands with someone they don't even know. But to a funeral, I'm too busy. No, I'm not going to take time off. And I thought to myself, how sad it is if someone were to have a funeral and no one were to show up, or very few. Relationships are more important than time and they gave of their time. And sometimes, secondly, saying nothing or little is sometimes best. Conclusion would be that most of the time, you see, we don't know the reason why things happen. They tried to give a reason and the reasons were terrible. Job, maybe it's because of hidden sin. Job, you know that God does not punish those who are living rightfully. Job, something is wrong with you. Sometimes saying little or nothing is wise. Suffering comes, and God calls us to respond in a godly manner. You know, at the funeral of Ronnie Bowers, Elizabeth Elliot, who was the wife of Jim Elliot, said to the family, You wonder what God is doing. And of course, we know that God never makes mistakes. He knows exactly what He is doing. And suffering is never for nothing. He has given to you, Jim, the cup of suffering, and you can share that with the Lord Jesus, who said, The cup the Father has given to me, I have received. She ended with a poem by Martha Snell Nicholson, and she speaks in this poem of a mendicant, which is a beggar. I stood a mendicant of God before his royal throne, and begged him for one priceless gift, which I could call my own. I took the gift from out of his hand, but as I would depart, I cried, But Lord, this is a thorn, and has pierced my heart. This is a strange, a hurtful gift, which thou hast given me. He said, My child, I will give good gifts, and gave my best to thee. I took it home, and though at first the cruel thorn hurt sore, as long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks for those blessings that you have given to us, as well as the adversities and the sufferings we have been given. I thank you, O God, for your word, which grants to us comfort, that we might comfort others with the comfort in which we have received. 
I thank you, God, for the gift of joy that we can have in the midst of trials, knowing, O oh God, that it is you who places us in that fire so that the dross would come up, that you might be able to see the likeness of your Son and the reflection of the gold. I give you thanks, O God, for your word, which sustains us every day. For your glory and your grace, in Jesus' name, amen.